Well, as far as uh, jail cells go, um, this one really wasn't too bad. Uh, There was a fan on the table. Uh, There was uh, a bed that had a mattress and a pillow. There was a toilet and a sink. But inside that jail cell sat a, a man with a tattooed anchor on his forearm, which symbolized really his personality, which was cast iron. This man was named Annibal. His face was as leathery in texture as it was in color. His glare made his enemies absolutely shudder. Now, life had changed for this man because he was no longer on the street where he was the boss. He was now in a jail cell where he was the prisoner. He was in because he'd killed a man, a teenage drug dealer, a neighborhood punk, as he called him. One night, this drug dealer used his mouth just one time too many, and Animal decided to silence it. Now, Animal was guilty, no doubt. His only hope was that the judge would agree that he had done society a favor by getting rid of a neighborhood problem. In that prison, Annabel had a pastor visit him. He had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Now, Annabel didn't like that the first step in coming to God was an admission of guilt. He had never said before, I've been wrong or forgive me. He had never backed down from any man, and he wasn't about to do it now, even if that man were God. But for a moment, it appeared this hardened man, for the first time, would admit his failures. When his head lifted, his eyes weren't tear-filled. Instead, they were angry. They weren't the eyes of a repentant prodigal. They were the eyes of an angry prisoner. Annabel began to pace back and forth in that tiny cell, and it became apparent that the true prison that was holding him was not made of bricks and mortar, but of pride. You see, he was twice imprisoned, once because of murder and once because of pride, once by his country and once by himself. The prison of pride Now, for most of us, it isn't as blatant in our lives as it was with Annabel. But the characteristics are the same, aren't they? This prison of pride is filled with men and women who are self-made, determined to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. doesn't matter what they did or who they did it to or where they'll end up. It only matters that I did it my way. Will that be your story? We jump back into our study in the book of Daniel, where we've seen what's happened when uh, the Jewish, the people of God, have been removed from uh, their country. They've become exiles and taken out of their country into a culture that collided with theirs. They find themselves in this strange land and strange culture uh, with different moralities and gods and and customs uh, that were against everything they had ever known and believed. And so God's people had to learn how to function in an unbelieving culture. I would argue that Daniel has much wisdom to offer us today because thousands of years later, we as God's people find ourselves in the same situation 
How do we live as faithful disciples in a very hostile and strange culture? Well, if you're willing and able, I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word. We're going to tackle all of chapter 5, but read two sections of it this morning. Daniel chapter 5, beginning in the first verse. King Belshazzar made a great feast for thousands of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords and wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Drop down to verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said to the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing the king made known to him, the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of him, the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Would he would, he killed whom he would he would. He kept alive whom he would. He raised up whom he would, and he also humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys." He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed And the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command And Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Father, these are hard words to hear. 
And unless your spirit moves in a powerful way, they won't do the work that they need to in each and all of our hearts. For the reality is, as much as we'd like to consider ourselves more like Daniel, we have far too many characteristics in our lives that make us more like Belshazzar. And so, Holy Spirit, we would ask what only you can do in these moments, that you would move in power, that you would speak to us, that we would be able to, from this text, hear the very heart of God for our hearts, that you would call us to repentance, that you would call us in humility to recognize you in all your greatness and all your glory. Father, for those hearts that are far from you, God, would you draw them to yourself through the power of your spirit. In your name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this is really a, a strange and perplexing passage in many ways because out of nowhere call, comes this Belshazzar guy. We don't get an introduction to who he is, and we really don't get a conclusion after the last words of this chapter are spoken. He's here and he's gone in just one chapter. Now, we've been very familiar with Nebuchadnezzar for the last four chapters and and for the messages that God has had for him, but now it's suddenly Belshazzar. And that reminds us that, that Daniel is primarily concerned with the spiritual conflict that takes place when kingdoms collide. And we've seen over and over again that that conflict is external, but that conflict is also internal. And so rather than give us, giving us the intricate details of, of Jewish chronology and even world history, Daniel presses this on us, that God wants us to focus our hearts on how we, as his people, can live faithfully in the middle of a pagan culture. That's Daniel's aim and goal. How do we as God's people live faithful lives in an increasingly hostile and secular culture? G.K. Chesterton, the great English writer and theologian, said, A dead thing can go with the stream, but only a live thing can go against it. That's the calling of Daniel. We're called to live in this world, to set up our residence even in Babylon, but not to allow Babylon to take residence in our hearts. That we are called to live faithfully in a secular and hostile culture, but not allow that culture to invade our very lives. And so let's dive in this morning. The first thing we see from our text is that culture will always extend an open invitation to the party. Have you noticed that culture always has a party? There's always a party uh, going on. There's always a reason uh, to party. We have parties to honor our accomplishments, parties to celebrate holidays, parties really for no reason at all, right? And what's the goal of these parties? Every party is simply an attempt to meet our deep need for significance. Do you see that? We go to parties because we want to matter, We want to be seen. We want to belong. Deep down, we want to know that our life counts because we all have a deep need for significance. Belshazzar had that deep need for significance too. He was living in the shadow of his grandfather, the great conquering and wildly successful King Nebuchadnezzar. 
His own father, Nabonidus, even moved the capital from Babylon to another city, Tamar, and then he leaves his son behind and, and in charge. Belshazzar is really the ancient version of a trust fund baby. Here I am. I've got the money. I've got the position of power. And I need to matter. And so I'm going to party. So he gathers together all the the nobles and the, the ruling class, all the people with political and social clout. Thousands he gathers into his temple so that he can be the center of attention. Now, this party was unusual. It was certainly next level uh, when you have a guy like Belshazzar bringing in his wives and his concubines to the same party. There's no doubt that this focus of this party is going to be sensual pleasure. And as they are partying it up in the midst of all the, the revelry in a very unexpected move, Belshazzar says, forget drinking from these red solo cups. <laughs> Go get me the gold ones. And not just the gold ones, but the ones that came from that Jewish temple. Those are the ones that we are going to drink with. See, Belshazzar was hearkening back to the days of Nebuchadnezzar's victory over Jerusalem. He was celebrating the might of this Babylonian empire here. But make no mistake, this move was a very brazen and deliberate act of spiritual defiance. To drink from the golden goblets of the temple, the chalices of the one true God, and then to celebrate and praise the lowercase g gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. But history has a way of repeating, doesn't it? Not much has changed today. The party may look and feel a bit different in our culture, but Romans 1 reminds us we're chasing after the same thing. Remember, Paul says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts over to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served, what, creature, created things rather than the creator. Listen, church, if you don't find your significance in a relationship with God, then you will always chase after the party in order to find your significance. You will always chase after whatever culture will dish up to say, come on over here in a desperate attempt for your life to matter to find significance. Your pursuit will always be in created things, hoping that they will just give you the significance and the value that you're after. And I don't know what it is for you. Your party pursuit may be in uh, relationships. It could be in sexual pleasures. It could be in alcohol or drugs. But it could also be in your work and your success your achievement and your notoriety, even your parenting and how your kids are excelling. It could be in your money. It can be in your possessions. Listen, we all are on this quest to have significance, to feel weighty, to make a name and to be noticed. We're all trying to ward off what we feel deep down inside of us is that 
there's got to be more to life than this, right? And so we start these pursuits. And culture's always going to say, hey, come over here. Hey, here's a party. You can be seen. You can be known. But all of our efforts will sorely be misguided and ultimately hopeless until they're placed in the one true God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Second thing we see from our text this morning is that God has a line that you don't want to find the hard way. We see that in, in verse 4, it was uh, really his sinful heart that caused Belshazzar's spiritual blindness. It, it wasn't the wine that caused his blindness. It was his own heart. Because it was out of his own heart that came such arrogance and foolishness that while he was literally having a party, his city was being surrounded. He had no idea. He didn't anticipate the enemies of his kingdom. But more importantly, he didn't anticipate the enemies of his own heart. Belshazzar lived unaware that his arrogance and pride and folly was an affront to a holy and just God. He anticipated no judgment from God and no judgment from man, yet we see both of them came. So suddenly, Belshazzar is yanked into the reality of the seriousness of the moment. God shows up and, and he sees his finger writing on the wall. The party stops. The DJ stops the music. The dancing is over. The golden goblets drop to the floor. Everyone is panicked. And in the original language, we would read that the king soils himself. He collapses to the ground when he sees this writing on the wall. See, for presumably the first time, Belshazzar experiences the fear of God. And in that moment, all of his pride and arrogance comes crashing down. So don't miss the moral of the story, right? When God shows up, people sober up. There's an awe that comes when God enters the scene. There's a holy fear that comes upon us when God shows up. See, mark my words, one day your party is going to stop. Much like the prodigal son, the money's going to run out. The so-called friends are going to bail on you. The party's going to end. Or you're going to grab hold of what you've been chasing after and you'll go, I got it. I finally got it only to find it's like sand just sifting through your fingers. Our idols never hold up. We get them only to realize I'm still lacking. I'm still wanting. See, God has a line and you don't want to find it the hard way. Have you experienced the fear of God? Philippians 2 reminds us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please hear my heart this morning. You will bow. You will either fear God and acknowledge his sovereign lordship, but you do have a choice. If you don't bow willingly, if your pride gets in the way, 
I can assure you, you will bow. You will be humbled like Belshazzar. It'll just be against your will. The third thing we see this morning is that God calls us to humbly speak prophetically, not pridefully as the party crasher. Now, did you notice we, we skipped over the, the section where Belshazzar uh, goes, I have no idea what's going on here. And so he does what most people would do. Let's call in the experts, right? No different than what CNN and Fox do when something goes wrong in our world. What do we do? We call in the experts, the scientists, those with modern worldly wisdom to try to bring understanding to things that we don't understand. And even despite this great reward that was offered, the experts couldn't interpret the writing on the wall. But in comes a woman who had disappeared from life. It was Belshazzar's grandmother, the queen, and she remembers Daniel. Daniel's likely in his 80s at this point. He's been faithful to God. He's faithfully served the government, faithfully interpreted dreams. He's been a mouthpiece for God, but he's kind of retired. He's been put on the shelf, if you will. But isn't it amazing what the queen says of Daniel? He has the spirit of God. And what a powerful proclamation to have said about our lives. Because here's the challenge for us living in Babylon. How do we speak winsomely and prophetically into our culture without being that guy? You know what I'm talking about when I say that guy? Just hop onto Christian Twitter and you will find that guy, okay? That's not what we want to be. Listen, we certainly are called to live out our faith openly and publicly and unashamedly, but not in a showy way, not in a flashy way, not by being demeaning. Look, everybody knew who Daniel was, what God Daniel worshipped, what God Daniel prayed to, and what God Daniel served. Daniel was known for his wisdom and his character. And Daniel now steps in and interprets the writing on the wall through the power of the Holy Spirit. But that same power of the Holy Spirit indwells you and I as followers of Christ. Jesus has given us everything we need to live and to speak prophetically in Babylon. So the challenge is how do we live and practice our faith in a winsome way that makes a difference on the culture around us? And don't miss that our goal is that culture would know us more for what we are for than what we are against. Don't miss that. We want to be as followers of Jesus known more for what we're about, for what we're for than what we are against. We know we've got good news to share, but how we share it matters greatly. And if we're to learn from Daniel, our love for God's word must be the well from which we draw the very words of life for the testimony of our faith. Listen, we want to be so full of God's word that it oozes out of us. That it comes out in everything we say and how we engage in culture. As Paul reminds us in Colossians, to let our speech be so seasoned with grace, like salt, that we may know how to answer 
each and every person. Now that's only possible through a spirit-led mind and a heart that is saturated in God's word. You'll notice every time that Daniel speaks, he doesn't draw attention to himself. Whether it was Nebuchadnezzar or now Belshazzar, here's what God has to say. And I'm trying to tell you in a way that you can hear. Because I love you and God loves you and wants you to turn and repent and trust him. The fourth thing we see this morning is that God desires that we kill our pride and that we cultivate humility. It's rightly been taught, be killing your pride or your pride will be killing you. Yet despite our best efforts, humility can't be self-taught. We just can't muster our way into this, can we? We can't just, uh, I'm going to you know, somehow will to be more humble. Look, as difficult it is to see pride in our lives, it's even more difficult to achieve humility. This is where Tim Keller, shout out to you, Pastor Bob, is helpful to us, Right? In reminding us that pride is simply not seeing that absolutely everything you have and everything you are is a gift from grace. That's our starting point. That's where pride is killed and humility is cultivated. The starting point of humility is to admit our inability to make it happen for ourselves. To come with the confession that we are far more prideful than we could ever imagine. And to bow before a holy and a righteous God. And recognize that all we have is a gift of his grace. Listen, pride's the root of our search for significance. Which means it's also the root of our insignificance and our insecurity. Pride sits at the root of all of our worry and anxiety, our fear of trying to control the future. Pride sits at the root of our bitterness and even our unresolved guilt. And even in our secular culture, we're aware that there's an ugliness, right, to pride. There's a repulsion even in secular culture towards prideful people. And that's why even in secular culture, we're drawn to humility. Jim Collins, in his famous business book, Good to Great, studied over 1,200 companies and looked at the top executives. oriented. They were very self-effacing. It was actually one of the most surprising revelations of the book. But it's something that we know and believe from God's word, right? That humility has the ability to make you influential. Think about athletes who would run through a brick wall for a humble and a caring coach, yet take a more well-known or even more knowledgeable coach, his leadership. Think about soldiers who, for a leader that they know cares about them, is in the trenches with them, would walk with them, would literally give their lives for that leader. 
Yet that same high-ranking leader that would press down with uh, authority, those same soldiers would struggle to take their marching orders. I've got a buddy on staff at a another church that works with a pastor that I've admired from a distance for uh, years, and I've often said to him, hey, don't tell your boss, but I'd go work for free for him. <laughs> Why is that? Because of his winsome, humble servant leadership. And he's a big deal. People know he's a big deal. He doesn't believe the hype. He lives it out in Humility. Humility is attractive, but humility is also influential. That's why Daniel keeps getting called back over and over and over again. In 2013, there was a basketball player by the name of Kevin Ware who was playing for the Louisville Cardinals, and they had made it to the NCAA tournament. He went up for, uh, to block a shot, and he fell and landed awkwardly, resulting in a compound fracture where uh, two of his bones were actually protruding from his skin. Uh, if, it was, if you saw the video, it was one of the worst videos that fans have ever uh, witnessed. And when he fell, he actually fell and landed near his own bench where everyone on the team turned away in horror except for one player. The coach was on record himself saying, I almost vomited right there looking down. That one player didn't turn away, though, but rather he moved in. He got on the floor with his teammate, and he held him. He grabbed his hand. He put his head on his chest at one moment, and he prayed over him. His name was Luke Hancock. Luke later became the MVP of that championship game. See, when others are instinctively acting self-protective or turning away, what does humility do? Humility moves in. Man, I so want to move with humility. But man, over and over again in my own life, pride just rears its ugly head. Even despite my best effort in my daily decisions, Even when I'm trying to reject pride, self-righteous pride shows up. (laughs) Even when I'm trying to pursue humility, it's a false humility. In my marriage, in my parenting, even in ministry life. Man, it is often so difficult to see. And I live with the reality that I am one bad decision away from destroying everyone and everything that I love and tarnishing the reputation of the gospel. And that's why I need people in my life that ask me the hard questions, that help me with my blind spots, areas that I don't see clearly. And I'll tell you, you need people in your life that will ask you the hard questions. And if you're humble enough, you'll ask them to, to come alongside you and to help you see what you can't see. Listen, Belshazzar had every opportunity to learn humility, right? From his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel even reminds Belshazzar of his grandfather, whom God humbled. We saw that at the end of chapter 4, and what that should have meant to him. But then he brings this stunning indictment to Belshazzar in verses 22 and 23. He says, and you, his son, 
Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. That very night, Belshazzar was killed. Listen, learning from the humbling of others is of vital importance to us. I had the privilege to know a very well-educated and successful man. He served our country faithfully during World War II. Had tons of stories to share about that. He was a savvy businessman who did really well for himself in commercial real estate down in South Florida. He was an avid reader. He was a lifelong learner. He, he was a lay theologian who, who took on his own initiative time to, to study and had scores upon scores of teaching notes on uh, theology, even did his very own complete survey of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I've got them in my office He was also one of the elders who were instrumental in the founding and the formation of our denomination, the PCA. You would need a very large wall to hang all of this man's accomplishments. Well, it was in 2001 that his health began to decline, and he knew that the end was near, He had a tiny desk in his garage. That was his office. And on that desk, there was a folder. In that folder, it had all the details that he had planned out for his funeral. There was a complete typewritten page that had all the hymns, all the scripture verses, and even the text. And of course, it would be in Romans, one of the hardest texts to preach, only fitting to be preached at his funeral, all laid out for the pastor to see. But what was interesting was what the directive that was written at the top of that typewritten page, it said this, a service of worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. His name was not mentioned anywhere In fact, it had clear instruction that no eulogies would be given. The glory was to go to God and to God alone. A life that was lived in humility would now culminate in a funeral marked by humility. It was always about Jesus for this man. That man was my grandfather. I probably violated a bit of his wishes in writing a simple half-page story about his life. Knew I would never get away with putting that out at the funeral, so he saved it for the reception. So people could see and know. A man who lived his life, much like Bach pinned his musical scores, S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. I've learned a lot from his life. I learned a lot from his death. And it could really be best summed up this way. Pride is what happens when we look inwardly. Humility is what happens when we look upwardly. 
May that be our desire and our goal as a faith family.